0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 4. And we'll read verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would... Give us attentive minds and hearts as we study it, and Father, that uh, when we come away from your word and your word preached, that we would not be just hearers who delude themselves, but that we would be doers, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. I've known a lot of people who have professed faith, and you've known a lot of people who have professed faith in Christ. Then very soon after, that profession of faith have suffered many trials. Trials just quickly come upon uh, upon them. Many very, ser- very serious trials of their faith. Sometimes these trials are physical. Uh, you know, the cancer, the car wreck, um, an injury of some type, right? And, and the temptation in most of these physical trials is also... Spiritual and centers on contentment and other things. Sometimes the trials are more spiritual. These would be trials from Satan, trials from the tempter, trials that tap into our, our innate fallenness and sinfulness, right? Throwing temptations in the face of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So that time when... When the trial comes is a critical time, right? I mean, we could, we could stop and talk about that for the next half hour. But when that temptation you initially face at that moment is a very critical point. In, and particularly for new believers, that, that uh, those first temptations is a critical point in the proving or the testing of their faith. These quick trials and temptations that come often prove what kind of soil the seed of, word got, the, seed of the word of God has fallen into. Right? Was it roadside soil? Was it rocky soil? Was it weed-infested soil? Or was it good soil that was planted there? Uh, many of us erroneously assume that when we came to faith, our trials would come to an end. Right, Some of us thought that, probably less, um, probably not many. But it is sold in certain portions of the church that when you come to faith, you know, um, best life now starts. Um, what we may not have realized is this, before we came to faith, the enemy of our souls was perfectly content with us enemy, the tempter, the devil, he was perfectly content with where we were, right? He was our master, and we were his loyal subjects, and we were happy not knowing one another, but um, when we came to faith, we switched teams, right? We switched teams, so to speak, and became loyal to our creator and the enemy of our souls. Satan had to start training his guns on us. At that point, right? His rage rather than his quiet rule was and is now what we receive, his rage. Um, Remember, Scripture says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are also exhorted as Christians to put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is spiritual warfare. If you're a materialist, you think I'm nuts. Right? But these are spiritual realities. And they're taught to us in scripture. You see, the devil is a schemer. And his rage is particularly directed against those who know Jesus. His enemy. Now think a bit about the context of Luke 4. Right on the heels of Jesus' father proclaiming, You are my beloved son is what we have in chapter 4. It's right on the heels of that that wonderful affirmation. Satan comes along um, and tempts Jesus to sin right after the Father has proclaimed that this is my lovely, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's no coincidence that Satan comes along right at that point, right at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, though there there were certainly temptations before this point for Jesus. We're not given a view of those things. Jesus is not um, Jesus is not tempted when leading a private life, but, but particularly now when he began his public ministry. Right? Just as you and I are particularly tempted by Satan when we first come to faith, so Jesus is particularly attacked right after his father announces that this is my beloved son. The beginning of his work of redeeming those who are dead and under the the deadly power of Satan. Now, here's another thing. Even though we see Satan doing the tempting, we know Jesus is there being tempted because it's God's appointment for him. Notice what it says in verse 1. Jesus was led around by the Spirit, into the wilderness, Jesus submitting himself in humility to the leading of the Spirit. Right. Notice what it says. Notice what it says there. Um, he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. In the parallel passage in Matthew chapter four, it's put this way: Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So God the Father announces His love for His Son and the Spirit comes along and takes Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, away to be assaulted by the devil. Ryle, J.C. Ryle, the um, pastor, says on this, from great privilege to great trips, there will often be but a step. And so when the Father spoke from heaven, it is almost as if he is giving his Son a battlefield encouragement, right? He's just about to be engaged in warfare with the devil, and his father is is stirring him up like King Henry in Shakespeare's Henry V, right? You've heard this this before, but from uh, Shakespeare's vamping on that history, he says, "'This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by.'" From this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that shed his blood with me shall be my brother. Right? And here's the king stirring up the troops to go die. But those are inspiring words, but they are not the word of God the Father Almighty from heaven. Right? God speaks to his son from heaven, you are my son. Right. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Now that's, that's pure encouragement. That's pure inspiration, right? The words of the Father are so vastly superior to the words of any man, no matter how noble. And the word of God made the worlds exist. The word of God are, the, are to the words of man as the light of the sun is to one single LED light, right? The enemy The age old enemy of mankind, Satan himself, is about to be engaged, and the father tells his son, I'm pleased with you. You're ready, you will die. You will say it is finished, and the head of the serpent of old will be crushed, even through all of that. Now go and fight. Engage the wicked enemy and reveal the pride which clouds his judgment. Reveal it to the whole world. And the Spirit, waving the glorious banner of God's kingdom, leads the incarnate Son of God into his first engagement with man's mortal enemy, the devil. On the other side of the battlefield is Satan, the old serpent who tempted Adam and Eve to sin in paradise, who amazingly is not afraid to assault the second Adam. He's not afraid. He's going after the second Adam. Ryle says he had overcome the first Adam in the Garden of Eve. Why should he not overcome the second Adam in the wilderness? He had spoiled man once of paradise. Why should he not spoil him of the kingdom of God. So Satan has jumped at this opportunity, an opportunity arranged by the Spirit himself. Satan sees this is the grand opportunity to overcome and destroy the kingdom of God. He looks upon his enemy, Jesus, and wonders why he has taken upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh emptying himself like an enemy who leaves his weapons behind in the battles out front Satan does his reconnaissance and sees that Jesus only carries one sword right but as we know the spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted but he also provided Jesus with a weapon he didn't just lead him there and and kick him out into the battle He led him there and supplied him with a weapon. Ephesians tells us about that weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God is a weapon. The word of God is a weapon meant to slay strongholds, to slay slay dragons, slay Satan himself. Again, Ryle says, he who is full of the Holy Spirit was yet not ashamed to make the Holy Scripture his weapon of defense and his rule of action. Yet Satan, gloriously prideful, believes he's got this one in the bag. Right? His uncontrolled pride has made him forget what God spoke to him after the first battle. You remember what God said to him? He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him just on the heel. He's going to bruise you on the head. Satan blinded, deaf, and dumb because of his pride and being a liar who is lying even to himself. Is thinking the Son of God is no new rival. Adam was easy to tempt through his wife. The second Adam will be easy to will be easy, no different through his new weakness. He's got this flesh he has to deal with. Why, you might be thinking, would it be the will of the Father that the Son be tempted? Be tempted by Satan to commit sin. Calvin, John Calvin says one of the reasons is to show us how obstinate Satan is in opposing the salvation of men. It's one of the reasons. Satan is obstinately opposed to anything good. Satan is untiring in a sense to undo all that God is doing. He is so committed to that task that uh, though he hates the light, he is willing even to disguise himself as an angel of light. And he does so to tempt God's children to rebel against their glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, look look at Satan's first maneuver. God said, You are my beloved son. And then Satan begins his attempt to sabotage the son by saying, If you are the son of God, the father has just announced from heaven, You are my beloved son. Satan, the idiot. But we like to follow idiots. It says, says, if, if you are the son of God. It's the same maneuver as in the Garden of Eden. The first step that Satan uses in our lives to get us to doubt what God has said, isn't it often the seed that leads to sin in your own life? You simply decide to disbelieve what God's word says about your mouth or your relationships or your faith. And you entertain what your flesh speaks and what Satan speaks. God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. And Satan says, if you are the son of God. God says to you, do not commit adultery. Satan says, do not commit adultery unless you are in a hopelessly loveless marriage. God says to you, take up your cross and die. Satan says to you, crosses are painful and not fun. Come follow me. You deserve better than a cross. Follow me. God says to you, you will be saved by faith. Satan says, is faith really enough? Is it really enough? God says to you, love your brothers. And Satan says to you, love your brothers when they're lovable. But not when they're not. Satan loves to tweak God's commands. Loves to just tweak them a little bit and make us doubt. He even attempts this. Same method on the very word of God, the very son of God, if you are the son of God. Now the three temptations, the three ways Satan tries to get the son of God to sin. In a nutshell, these three temptations show us the three uh, methods that Satan uses to tempt us. Unbelief, worldliness, and presumption. Unbelief, worldliness, and presumption. The first temptation is an attempt to get Jesus to doubt God's care. It's an attempt to provoke some sort of unbelief in the Son of God. Jesus is hungry, having fasted for 40 days, and so Satan tempts him with food. Very simple temptation, temptation that we face all the time. So Satan tempts him with food, just like Eve with the forbidden fruit. So Satan appeals to Jesus by fleshly appetite. Right? Both are being tempted to eat unlawfully. Eve is not hungry, but she likes what, you know, what that fruit will give her. Jesus is hungry, but he understands what it would mean for him to eat. It would be to sin by doubting God's provision, doubting God's sustenance, doubting God's word. It would be for him to believe Satan would better provide for him than his heavenly father would provide for him. And so Jesus responds with the first thrust of the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall live, shall not live, on bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. And we know the rest of the verse, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He responds by proclaiming he would believe what God had said, not what Satan had said. It's just, he's proclaiming his faith in God's word. Quite literally, um, I know some who have succumbed to this kind of temptation. Right? I think we have all faced times where we have succumbed to this kind of temptation. I know some who were unwilling to give up income, even though their devotion to that income was so clearly, obviously, competing with their devotion to God. Every time I speak with someone who tells me that they, they have to work on the Lord's Day, Now, I'm your pastor, I get to tell you hard things. Every time I speak with someone who tells me they have to work on the Lord's Day, I think of this passage and I get worried. Right? It is quite possible, even probable, that they are being tempted to think that they must live for bread rather than for the word of God. More important for me to make $15 an hour on Sunday mornings than to be fed the word of God from the pulpit, right? Is that not what Satan is trying to convince Jesus of here? Is that not what Satan is trying to convince you of? I mean, who hasn't thought this way at times, right? God, who now employs bread for our support, will enable us whenever he pleases to live by other means, That is what Calvin said about this passage. Do we believe that? Aren't we tempted to think that we must work for bread, 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 and don't we forget that God can sustain us by other means? That's where faith comes in, isn't it? Aren't we tempted by Satan to think that God is unable to sustain us without giving us giving ourselves over to prudently producing bread, even if it means breaking his commandments, breaking his Sabbath day. I mean, we've got cable bills to pay, right? That's depressing. Jesus fasted for 40 days and lived on and by the word of God. And lest you think that it was because Jesus was God that he was able to do that, Moses and Elijah did it too. Jesus said, my bread is to do the will of my Father. Is that our bread, or has Satan duped us, confused us, and led us to simple unbelief in God's goodness and provision? Of course, you must work for your bread. Right? But there's a competition between working for physical bread and working for spiritual bread on the Lord's Day mornings. Second temptation is an attempt... To get Jesus to clamor for worldly power. Somehow Satan shows Jesus all the powers, all the kingdoms, all the realms of the earth in a moment's time. Right? Satan thinks that Jesus will jump at the opportunity to own what he made and already owns. Those cattle on a thousand hills. And indeed Satan is a prince over this world being the prince of the power of the air, as he is called, but he is not the king of kings. He is not the king of kings. He is not lord of the earth. Even Satan is ruled by a king that only allows him to do as he sees fit. Think of Job. So Satan is lying here. He has no power to give what belongs to another. Yet Satan promises liberally, just as he did with Eve in the garden, right? If she ate of the fruit, you will be like God. Oh, that's what Eve wanted. All Jesus has to do is bow down to Satan. Just offer him some little worship. Replace his father with Satan. One little bowing of the knee. And Jesus then responds with the second thrust of the sword. The, the word of God, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only. In other words, Jesus will bow his knees to only one, and that's to his father alone, not to anything inferior, certainly not to anything created, not to Satan. Satan promises very liberally to you and I, doesn't he? Satan's a liar. Liars always promise liberally. Salesmen always promise liberally, right? That's why all salesmen are liars. I'm just tweaking some of you. (laughs) Salesmen have to be good on their promises, and good salesmen are. But Satan is a terrible salesman because he has nothing to offer and yet says he has everything. Right? Satan promises very liberally to you and, and I, he tells us that the world is where contentment is to be found, and we go seeking for it, thinking somehow that we can be both the friend of God and a friend with the world. We think that we can serve both God and serve money and the world. We, we like Israel, think that we can celebrate Passover one week and the next celebrate fertility with the Baals and the Ashtaroth. We hear God say friendship with the world is hostility with God, but Satan shouts louder with God is not enough. And the third temptation is an attempt to get Jesus to presume upon God. In other words, Satan tries to get Jesus to do something that would put God to the test and that would force God's hand. He wanted Jesus to presume upon something. Satan, still fighting after these two sword thrusts from Jesus, leads Jesus up to the highest point in Jerusalem, the pinnacle of the temple, and tells him to jump. Jump! Do it, man. It'll be cool. Angels will sweep down and be like something out of an Avengers movie, right? Right? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Then notice that Satan takes up the word of God himself, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And not content with one proof text, Satan brings up two proof texts. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Satan can quote scripture when it suits his purpose. He is very happy to use anything against God's speech. He will pit one passage against another if he has to. But his goal is for him to get Jesus to do something to test his father in heaven. He wants Jesus to presume upon God. And to do so would be sin. Jesus is not to test God. He is to obey his father. Those scriptures are true, but they nowhere say that one should throw oneself off the pinnacle of the temple. Basically, Satan is tempting Jesus to be a sort of snake handler. Right? Do this risky thing and see God save you. Jesus then responds with the third thrust of his sword, the word of God. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus is saying he does what God commands as God has commanded it. Calvin remarks on this verse that we must follow the means, the means God has laid out in his word. He writes, those who leave the means which God recommends act as absurdly as if one were to cut off a man's arms and hands and then order him to work. Right? If we leave off the means that God has given to us. Then we we are that man with no arms. And no legs. Unable to act. Here's an example. God says marriage is good. So you desperate for marriage. Go after someone who is attractive. But not a Christian. Uh I mean the temptation is intense. You're testing God. Right? Presuming, presuming that my marriage will be a missionary marriage in which my spouse will come to believe the things that I believe. He'll be gracious. Right? He's, he's, he's a gracious God. Though you've disregarded the means that he laid out, which is do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. That's God's means. That's God's word. That's what it says. We're tempted this way. We're tempted this way, to bypass the means that God has laid out for much more uh, convenient and immediate uh, gains. A few applications of these verses. Don't be surprised by trials. Don't be surprised by trials. All of you are right now going through trials. Every one of you has trials. Those trials may be minor. They may be moderate. They may be like nothing you've ever faced in your life. They may be financial, they may be material, they may be spiritual, they, may, they come in all kinds of different guises. But 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange what you're going through, it's common. Right? But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. So remember as you are under trial and suffering that Jesus suffered too and overcame. Second, resist the devil. James 4.7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I mean, there's a lot of activity here. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And it goes on to, to speak about all the armor that we put on in order to, to um, put down those flaming arrows of the devil and extinguish them. And, and we take up the, the word of God. Right, So um, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a promise, right? But so little are we prepared to resist. Our resistance is very weak. In fact, we open ourselves up to his temptations. But if we resist him, he flees. And then... Three, believe, know, and speak the word of God. That's what we saw Jesus do. It's very simple. You have to believe, you have to know, and you have to speak the word of God. The word of God will be the, thor- the, the sword thrust that allow you to um, move on. Uh, Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then fourth, you've got to have faith. Remember Jesus. Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Believe that verse. When temptations come, believe that there's also with that temptation a way of escape. So often we want the temptation and we don't just don't look for the way of escape. We haven't figured that out. We haven't matured enough to look for that way of escape right when the first feelings of temptation are coming on. Now, the rest of Jesus' life was not devoid of temptation, but there were times of peace. Right After permitting them to be sharply tried, he abates in some measure the violence of strife that they may take breath for a while and gather courage. So Jesus' work of crushing Satan's head was not done. But for now, on that day, verse 13 in Luke, Satan left him. Satan left him until an opportune time. Notice what it says there. So he had peace at the end of this trial in the 40 days and the temptations. He had peace. But Satan was not done. He would come back at an opportune time. He thought he might do a little work through Judas, another tactic to get to Jesus and derail this plan of the Father. But for now, on this day, at the end of this temptation, there's calm after a battle. And Calvin summarizes the conflict and resolution this way. He says, this means that no truce or relaxation was granted to Christ till he had been fully tried by every species of contest. He adds that Christ was left for a season only. That is intended to inform us that the rest of his life was not entirely free from temptations, but that God restrained the power of Satan so that Christ was not unseasonably disturbed by him. In like manner, listen to this, in like manner, God usually acts towards all his people. For after permitting them to be sharply tried, he abates in some measure the violence of the strife that they may take breath for a while and gather courage. Right? When a battle ends, there is a wonderful peace. But that peace has to be used well, it's peaceful so that you might be preparing. That peace is to be put to use preparing one's heart and mind for the next battle. And so we return to the word of God, hiding that word in our hearts during those times of peace. So that when the the temptations come, those weapons are readily available. But if you just take the peace and you just waste it, you won't be ready for when the temptations come next time. When the difficult news comes to you and you lose your mind over it. When the, when the lusts of the flesh hit you and you completely give yourself over to them. Right? Rather, you should have been memorizing that one verse that you could have thrust into the heart of that temptation to put it down. Right? That's what we need to do when there's peace. We need to use it well and prepare for the next battle.